Hi, and thanks for tuning in to episode 51 of This Week in Drugs. For those of you listening last week, or for the astute people who noticed the length of this episode, you'll know that it's a short one. That's because we just started our partial hiatus between seasons 2 and 3, so for the month of July we're going to be doing news-only episodes without having any discussion or a drug of the month. And Tyler is going to be standing in for Rochelle since she's busy studying for the bar exam. So while this is a short one, it's still got some great stuff, so thank you so much for joining us for episode 51 of This Week in Drugs, and we really hope you enjoy the show. everybody now it's time for the weekly news and forecast where we bring you some of the biggest drug news stories from the last week and tell you about some exciting things that are coming up and so normally of course this would be rochelle and i hosting it but because we're on hiatus uh it's now me and tyler again so tyler thanks for joining me and do you want to uh, start things off with our first story today yeah totally so our first story comes out of ohio and it's about ohio's new medical marijuana law that was passed recently by the state legislature Um, And so it's going to come into effect in September, on September 8th, and the law will allow patients to possess uh, their medicine, but there's no um, distribution system in place yet. So that's led to a lot of people asking the question of, like, where patients are supposed to find their medicine. Um, Some lawmakers have suggested that they go across state lines into Michigan, but uh, legal experts have reminded them Mm -hmm. that that is breaking (laughs) a lot of federal laws and is not a safe uh, Mm -hmm. route for patients. Um, So it's most likely that people will be continuing to purchase from the illicit market in Ohio for the time being. Um, and I wanted to pull this because I know that, you know, Ohio has been a hotbed of like marijuana reform activity. It's been a really interesting place. Mm-hmm. And um, I also know that this is like a pretty similar, like this is a pretty standard problem for states that are new to the medical marijuana market. Mm-hmm. I remember this happening pretty clearly when you and I were back in Connecticut and the Connecticut medical marijuana program right. uh, got started. It took like two years until dispensaries were open, something like that and, and selling medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it, in the case of Connecticut, uh, you know, cannabis decriminalization had already been passed, and like that's also happening in Ohio, where law enforcement has mm-hmm. deprioritized uh, cannabis offenses. So, you know, it's it's likely that for most patients, um, they won't see, t- you know, they'll be protected for possession. Um, but I think this is just like a huge, um, a huge hole and like a really uh, like a really fundamental problem with new medical marijuana states that mm-hmm. don't. Put protections for uh, you know the drug manufacturers and drug sellers in this case because they're basically the caregivers for these patients and it's it's unfortunate that right. there's no protection for the people who are like you know th- th- this is just part of that like dichotomy where drug policy reform often like tries to protect people who are using drugs and then completely ignores the folks who like produce and sell those drugs and it's just like kind of this disconnect mm-hmm. there so. Yeah, and this, as you said, is like a super standard problem, but specifically, or a much bigger problem for the the states that don't allow home growing, um, which includes Ohio and Connecticut, because at least in other states where home grows allowed, and they're like, okay, we're going to be taking a, a year or two in order to get these other dispensaries licensed. At least you have the legal ability to grow your own. Of course, you know, obtaining those seeds is still illegal, and so that's 
with all of this mess of, of, of state and federal laws, but at least that gives people a little bit more of kind of a safety valve of a way to, to obtain it. Um, but yeah, in these states where it's so restrictive, there's it, it's okay, you're allowed to possess it now, but dispensaries won't be open for a few years, which, which working in the marijuana business side of things like does make a lot of sense. It just takes forever to get through all of the necessary hoops to, to it, it. We can't say dispensaries can open on day one. Yeah, because no uh, one's but ready. It's also, yeah, exactly. But it is also puts patients in a difficult spot when it's saying, okay, um, you can uh, possess it, but you can't obtain it. And especially for, old, say, older people, people who don't have the easier connections to the black market, who might not know where to buy this, then that's that's really hurting them most as opposed to, say, a younger patient who already has a, a ready supply or someone who's well connected. Yeah. It'd be really interesting if, you know, in the future of like medical uh, marijuana reforms, we saw some sort of exemption made for drug sellers and manufacturers who were like doing it in a caregiver capacity or like, you know, giving like care, yeah. like, or just allowing caregiver programs to start from day one too. Right. So even if there's no, even if mm-hmm. you can't get home grow into a policy, cause this was the case where, you know, the, the legislature's version of the medical marijuana bill was more restrictive than what, would have gone to the ballot uh, with MPP. Mm -hmm. And so I think like this is just like one of those things where, you know, it's somewhat of a political compromise, but uh, maybe there's room for something else. Um, Anyways, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I guess we'll, you know, looking forward to reading a bunch of news lines about the problems that medical marijuana patients are going to (laughs) have in Ohio. Of which there will be many, especially considering that there's no smoking allowed, but they are are allowed to sell flour. And so who knows how that'll <laughs> get enforced, but we'll see. <laughs> but another uh, marijuana news is our second story, this one on a national scale. And it is also, you know, really nitty gritty, actually, but we're drug nerds here and it is hugely important. And so the thing is that every few years, the major political parties get together and they draft their platforms. Um, so, you know, their platform being just their list of policy positions that they want all of their candidates to adopt. And last week, a panel of Democrats that are working on the, this new revision approved language supporting marijuana reform. And it's a few sentences, so I'm just going to quote it right here. And it says, We believe that the states should be laboratories of democracy on the issue of marijuana, and those states that want to decriminalize marijuana should be able to do so. We support policies that will allow more research to be done on marijuana, as well as reforming our laws to allow legal marijuana businesses to exist without uncertainty. And we recognize our current marijuana laws had an unacceptable disparate impact, with arrests for marijuana possession among African Americans far outstripping arrest rates among whites despite similar usage rates. And that's the end of it. And so it's a little bit of a mouthful. There's some important parts that I'd like to run over here. But just on like the the wide view, it's just that this is a, a big deal because it hasn't been done before um, in terms of one of the major parties really embracing marijuana reform in this way. Um, and it could be, you know, the beginning of a transition in that just a few years ago, um, I mean, what Obama came out in favor of gay marriage four years ago, and now it's pretty much taboo to be a Democrat who doesn't support same-sex marriage. And so if we see the same sort of trajectory that we are seeing in a lot of other ways, it could very well be that marijuana reform is becoming pretty much the consensus in the Democratic Party and that it'll be pretty much an expectation of all candidates in the future. That's awesome. And I think it's also like great that they included this talking point about the disparate impact on communities of color. Um, because, mm-hmm. you know, we're seeing now in Colorado with uh, a lot of, like, attention, a light being shed on the continued rise in arrest rates for, like, young people of color in Colorado, um, you know, 
I, I think making sure that that is a part of the support for ending marijuana prohibition is mm-hmm. really useful in crafting whatever those policies look like in the states, um, especially if mm-hmm. it's something that's if like maybe in four years, like some marijuana decriminalization efforts come out of Democratic Party stuff directly, like it'll be great that they have this as part of their platform and that that is like mm-hmm. a specific component of that policy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, and that's so important, too. And I'm glad you brought it up because I totally want to highlight this, too, and that there's this is a three sentence policy. And the third sentence is about disparate enforcement. And it's the only reason that's listed. Like the other two are saying, this is what we think about this. And then the third one is like, oh, and because and the reason we think this is because of these racial disparities. It's not like, oh, you know, tax revenue is important and right or anything about, uh, you know, the, the right to put whatever you want in your body. So it's like this is really the, the grounding for for this statement, which is important. And uh, something else, too, that I wanted to just hit on before we wrap it up, but is that um, they unfortunately did reject. There was another amendment uh, calling specifically for the support of descheduling marijuana. So taking it completely out of the Controlled Substances Act. And unfortunately, that one failed or it got tabled and never acted on. Uh, but they ended up doing this one. Um, so unfortunately, it's not as far as it could have gone. Um, and hopefully we'll see it expand in the future. But this one does say allow legal marijuana businesses to exist without uncertainty. So it's pretty much saying let the states do what they want to. And because that, that seems to be a reference to, to banking and these and tax issues right. and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, as far as major political parties go, like not too shabby on the marijuana reform here. Mm hmm. Good work, Democrats. Oh, and the other thing I also wanted to mention is that this is the National Party, uh, but the California state Democrats have actually come out in favor of their their state marijuana legalization initiative. So the state parties, they have autonomy, and the California Democrats have actually endorsed legalization. So hopefully we'll be seeing, just like with real marijuana reform at the uh, policy level, of just kind of bottom-up states first, and then national politics will come along. So our next story is less of a story in and of itself and more of like an observation about trends in journalism. Um, this week I've seen a meta story. <laughs> yeah, meta story, super meta. Um, mm-hmm. This week I've seen like probably about four different stories that are endorsing and calling for safe injection facilities in the United States. Um, And the one that kind of sparked it for why I wanted to talk about it on this episode was an article out of The Atlantic that talks about the ways in which San Francisco could benefit from supervised injection facilities for its populations that are experiencing homelessness and injecting drugs. Um, Of course, you know, all of these pretty much... It pretty much ubiquitously touch on insight and all of the successes that we've seen, which we've covered pretty extensively. So I won't jump into it other than to tell uh, new listeners that safe injection facilities work and no one overdoses there uh, because medical staff are on hand mm-hmm. um, <laughs> or no one dies from overdose. People do like, well, not no, no overdose. Yeah. Right. No one, no there's no, overdoses. there's no fatal overdoses. I'm sorry. Yeah. So um, no, there's no fatal overdoses, but there are overdoses, which is, you know, that I think it's, that's the testament to it. Um, I also saw an article this week that focused on a syringe exchange in Boston that's hoping to get approved for a safe injection facility, and that comes after the you know news of like the mayor of Ithaca uh, in New York who's calling for safe injection sites, and then of course um, you know we had uh, Delegate Dan Morheim on who was calling for safe injection and decriminalization in that omnibus in Maryland. So 
Um, it just seems like there's a huge, uh, a huge push in some of the some of the media outlets to really endorse and talk about supervised injection facilities um, in the U.S. And in the article about the Boston safe injection facility, there was like kind of a heat map of different proposals, and I saw like eight or like eight or nine different cities that have had concrete proposals and like pushing for um, safe injection facilities. Um, but out of this Atlantic article, there were a couple really good quotes from the Drug Users Union in San Francisco. Um, Hollis Cambodia is a person who works there, and I really like this quote from him, so I'm just going to say it. It's, um, anyone who puts up barriers to supervised injection facilities is actively engaged in the death of drug users, actively a part of mothers losing their kids to overdose, and other terminal health-related issues that cause the deaths of people who use drugs. Um, I thought that was particularly powerful, and I think the fact that major media outlets like The Atlantic are publishing those quotes is going to have like some significant like ripple effects outwards. And then another part that the article covered was this um, study commissioned by the Drug Policy Alliance from the David Binder Research, um, which says that three-quarters of vo- voters in San Francisco uh, disagree with the mayor and say that they'd support a supervised injection service. Uh, which is huge. So there's a lot of public support and then just a lot of media coverage about these things. So uh, this is like, you know, meta news. Um, All the news that we're covering seems to be pushing. I mean, of course, you know, we've got some bias here, certainly, but um, there's a there's a lot out there talking about it. So, yeah, this is so exciting. I mean, safe injection facilities do really seem to be I mean, we always have this thought now, of course, that, you know, as marijuana reform is coming along and kind of becoming consensus, what is the next big thing in terms of the controversial issue that's going to be thrust to the mainstream? And it seems like there's been so much progress on the psychedelic medicine side of things has been one. But safe injection facilities, I, I think, has really given it a run for its money in terms of how much traction it's been getting just in the past few months. And I honestly, I didn't even heard about this one in Boston. So as soon as we're done recording, I want to like go check that out and support it in some way, just because, I mean, there are a lot of really progressive communities around here. And if it is that the public is in favor of it, just like it is in San Francisco, and it's just the elected officials that are standing in the way, I think that is a really good fertile ground for activists to be getting involved and trying to to open up some of these in the United States, because as our listeners also know from us talking about insight so much, we still don't have any in the entire country. Yeah, really exciting. So I'm um, looking forward to seeing what um, I hope. I'm really excited for the day when we get to report on the news of a supervised injection facility opening in the U.S. versus just being talked about. Ah, uh, yes. Cannot wait. That'll be a much bigger story. <laughs> And finally, for our last story this week is uh, also on the the needle exchange syringe access kind of side of things is that North Carolina is very, very close to becoming the 33rd state to legalize needle exchanges. And so on Thursday, the state Senate voted 48 to 2 in support of a bill that would allow for these important harm reduction facilities. And the state house supported them with a vote of 88 to 20. So a little bit closer, but still pretty blowout. And a group called the North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition has been the primary driver for this campaign. And they've been working with supportive police officers and other officials to drum up support for it. And so now it goes to the desk of the governor, whose name is Pat McCrory. And he hasn't yet made a statement on it. Uh, so it's a little unclear as to whether he's going to be signing it or if he'll if he's taking some time and can still be convinced or what's going on. So I uh, definitely encourage people to reach out to him. But overall, this is just uh, a really important thing in that. It's nice to see progress in the South. Uh, I mean, it's usually a much harder region to get any sort of drug policy reform passed in, tends to be more conservative. 
but we are we're seeing as you were saying that there's starting to be a lot more traction for this sort of thing and that also because of the overdose uh epidemic that people are looking for a lot of different solutions and, and needle exchanges are certainly one of them and you know i will say the the south is um i think has a bad rap in uh as far as like drug policy reform goes in our experience on like the SSDP staff, and I know uh, Scott, uh, my counterpart who works in, in the South, um, would say that our chapters and students are having an easier time with harm reduction specific policy change. So um, Good Samaritan, medical amnesty, naloxone access is like is probably one of the most rapidly growing policy changes that like we see as an organization in the South. And it's a, and it's a hotbed of activity for that. So, um, so yeah, I, I think there's, you know, all these, all these reputations about the South being kind of like a backwards or conservative place, which is certainly true in some aspects, but when it comes to harm reduction, that's definitely not something that has played out. And I think, you know, I guess I'm not super surprised here in North Carolina and the North Carolina harm reduction coalition is like one of the, best like harm reduction uh, organizations out there too they're like a model for many other like harm reduction services so um you know it's like the right state to be to be working in on this stuff so i'm i'm pretty confident about this uh about this bill um i feel like they've got the right people on the ground working on this thing i'm really excited about that too so Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. And so, yeah, as I said, this is going to be the 33rd state, hopefully, and 33 such mixed feelings. Like, at one side, it's like, oh, that's a ton of them. But then on the other hand, thinking of this in the in comparison to marijuana, we have 25 medical marijuana states, so almost as many. And at the, at the federal level, there's even congressional support, basically, for needle exchanges now, and uh, that they've uh, been able to restore some funding for it. So hopefully we'll, we'll see this number ticking up a lot more now that there is that kind of federal support for this. And um, just want, before hopping into the headlines, do want to reiterate to everyone, especially if you're from or in North Carolina, uh, call the governor right now. His name is Governor Pat McCrory, and the phone number of the office is 919 814 2000 and so if you could just give them a call say that you support needle exchange ask them to please sign the bills that got supported by this huge majority call 919-814-2000 and so with that now hopping into our quick hit headlines and the first is that we've got a large survey of europeans published in the journal addiction which found that more than six million people have quit smoking with the help of electronic cigarettes while more than nine million have cut back on their tobacco smoking so this is a really great sign since past studies have found that vaping is only about 5% as harmful as smoking. That's great. And for our next headline, um, the Canadian Marijuana Task Force that will be uh, working on legalizing cannabis in the country is going to be led by former Deputy Prime Minister Anne McClellan, which is huge. The marijuana legalization initi- initiatives in Arizona and California have both officially qualified for the ballot joining Maine and Nevada. So once officials in Massachusetts certify that campaign signatures, we're going to have five states officially voting on adult-use marijuana legalization this November. And finally, the extradition of El Chapo to the U.S. has been halted in Mexico. And finally, Rodrigo Duterte, the newly sworn-in president of the Philippines, who we've mentioned many times before for advocating for the extrajudicial killing of suspected drug dealers, has amped up his rhetoric even more, now calling for people to kill drug users as well. In a speech on Thursday, he he said, quote, if you know any addicts, go ahead and kill them yourself, as getting their parents to do it would be too painful, end quote. And with that, now it's time for the weekly forecast. 
Yeah, so um, my weekly forecast is about the Amend the Rave Act campaign, uh, which is gaining new steam as DPA and DanceSafe uh, team up for a, a huge social media photo campaign push um, that is targeting uh, Vice President Joe Biden, uh, who was an original like author and advocate of the Rave Act. Um, so in the next, I think I think there's still six weeks left in the campaign, and every week they're doing different. Um, different uh, images with calls to action for their whole social media network. So check out the DPA and DanceSafe uh, Facebook page. We're also resharing them from all the SSDP accounts as well. Um, share them far and wide and then take part in all the actions that they recommend um, because each week they've got something else for people to, uh, for people to do to help amend the Rave Act. Awesome. And since uh, we've got the short episode this week, I'm going to take some liberties and have two forecasts. And so the first one is a much more traditional one. And this is that for our fans in the UK, uh, there's going to be a great event in Oxford on Tuesday. Uh, and it's called Drugs Can Be Dangerous, But Does Banning Them Cause More Harm Than Good? And it's hosted by a group called Anyone's Child Families for Safer Drug Control. And it's going to be including testimony from a parent whose child died of a drug overdose and a retired undercover police officer who works with law enforcement against prohibition. So that's this Tuesday, July 5th at 6.30 p.m. And tickets are five pounds. So we'll put a link to the event on our website and hopefully you can check it out in Oxford. And then for the second forecast, this is a much more personal one, uh, and this is about the podcast. And so uh, our forecast is that this week is the first full week of our Kickstarter campaign, which we talked about last week and we're really excited about. Uh, We actually thought that it would be coming out a little bit uh, in a couple of days, but instead of taking three business days to conclude, they actually approved it pretty much immediately. So it's already live. And so if you go to Kickstarter and search for This Week in Drugs, or you can just follow the link that we'll have on our website, We've got our Kickstarter page set up there. We're trying to raise a total of $500 in order to support all of the ongoing costs that uh, total something, I think, $861 a year we calculated it at. Yeah, just about. That sounds right. Yeah, and so it, it takes a lot of money to actually just keep the lights on, use all the data that, or pay for all the data that's used in order to download our episodes, uh, things like the recording and uh, editing equipment. And so we, we get some money from Patreon, which we've mentioned, and we always uh, are really grateful for our supporters there. But in order to balance out and hopefully even raise some more money to do some advertising and grow our audience, we we're having this Kickstarter. And so if you just check it out, there's all sorts of range of pledges. You can pledge as little as $5 all the way up to 100 or even more if you'd like. Um, we're trying to raise a total of 500 and we're doing it all this month in July. Uh, it's a 30-day campaign, expires at the end of July. So if that's something that you're interested in and you value uh, the podcast, please check it out. We'd really appreciate any level of support that you could give. Or if you can't give or in addition, just uh, share it with your friends and hopefully that'll uh, help it go viral a bit more too. Also, my birthday is in July, so <laughs> good timing. So happy uh, birthday to Tyler. Yeah, so my birthday present will be you donating to our Kickstarter. Wonderful. <laughs> Thanks, listeners. Awesome. So that about wraps it up. Um, as we always say here on this on the This Week in Drugs news section, we're always keeping our eyes on the drug policy news realm, but there's so much happening that we can't always catch it all. So if there's a story that you'd like us to cover or that you wanted us to cover and we didn't, feel free to reach out to us um, at our email, thisweekindrugs at gmail.com, or find us on social media. You can search Facebook and Twitter for This Week in Drugs and uh, send us a message there. We're very responsive, and we'd love taking feedback from our listeners.
Thanks for listening to episode 51 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Tyler Williams and me, Sam Tracy. The show is also produced by Tyler Williams, Sarah Merrigan is our engagement director, and Rochelle Young is our co-host in Exile. I'd also like to give a shout out to Kevin Oliveira, who in addition to originally designing our logo, came through in the clutch this week with another graphic design project to make sure our Kickstarter went out on time, so thanks a ton, Kevin. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more information about the show, including links to our episodes, news stories, and so much more. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and like what you hear, please give us a rating and write a quick review. We do say this every week, but it is really helpful for getting us to the top of the charts so other people can find us and start listening too. And finally, as I said during our discussion, our Kickstarter is now live. If you enjoy the show and want to help us cover our costs, please search for This Week in Drugs on Kickstarter and pledge as little as $5, which will get you our eternal gratitude. At higher pledges, you can get other cool rewards, like a pack of Twid stickers in the mail, or even naming rights to the microphone that I'm speaking into right now. If that sounds great to you, head over to Kickstarter and search for This Week in Drugs to find our page and help us out. That's all for episode 51, so please remember to stay sensible, and we'll see you next week. Our outro song this week is Feels Good by Blind Man. Turn